Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome to Freedom of Species, the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. My name's Caroline, and I'm really delighted um, that our guest today is Ondine Sherman. Ondine is the co-founder and managing director of Voiceless, the Animal Protection Institute. She's also quite a prolific author and has written uh, six or seven books now. Um, a great book, uh, Vegan Living, A Simple Guide to a Cruelty-Free, Healthy Plant-Based Life, a young adult fiction series, the Animal Ally series, um, and a couple of other books. I saw that you've got a, um, a book that just came out this year, The Campfire of a Woman's Heart, some stories about sort of resilience from inspirational women. So... We're really, really delighted um, to have Ondine on the show and, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. It's, it's fantastic to have you. Could we just start talking a little bit about um, your background? You've been involved in um, animal rights advocacy for, for many years. How did that come about? Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your childhood and, and what really got you interested in animals and understanding about um, often, I guess, the plight that they find themselves in? Mm. Yeah, I, I guess my origin story, in a sense, is started at when I was seven years old, sitting at the kitchen table with my family and my grandmother. My grandmother lived with us and she had cooked dinner. Um, she, her kind of heritage was um, Lithuanian. So her, the meal that she made was tongue. Uh, and that was the moment when I connected um, meat to animals because it was a very kind of shocking, you know, um, visceral <laughs> experience of realizing that tongue is somebody's tongue. So I, I had one of those moments of, um, you know, questioning and, you know, realizing animals are my friends, I don't want to eat them. And thankfully, um, my family supported me, nobody else was vegetarian or vegan at that time. Um, but I know a lot of kids go through this at, at that kind of age, seven, eight is quite common. Um, and often families will try to undermine that or reassure or even sneak meat products back in the kid's diet. So, um, so I guess I had, you know, um, a sympathetic environment. And then the next step on my journey 
was walking past, I think I must have been around, um, I don't know, 11 or or something like that. And I was walking with my dad and we passed um, a stand of animal liberation and they had all their photographs and petitions and I was, you know, fascinated and looking at everything and I signed up for the magazine and I started getting, yeah, as a, as a kid, these, uh, I'm trying to remember the ma- name of the magazine at the time. This was in the 80s um, mm. or maybe in 1990, no, in the 80s, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, it was, um, yeah, another very memorable moment was lying on my bedroom floor. I think I must have been around 12 and I had my dog, Bronnie, and I was flipping through this um, magazine and I was showing photographs of um, a pig slaughterhouse and um, what was happening, like a cruelty expose. Mm. And I made a promise to my dog at that moment that I would do everything I could to stop her kind from being kind of tortured and um, exploited like this. Uh, And then I kind of got increasingly more and more involved in the activism movement in high school. I went to lots of protests, went out to the kind of duck hunting season protest Mm -hmm. and camped out and fur protests. And, um, and yeah, that was like a big, uh, I guess, theme of my uh, teenage years Mm -hmm. and realizing that there weren't really very many, if any, jobs you can do um, to protect animals back in mm. back in those days and even, you know, still today. Um, it's very limited professionally what you can do apart from being a vet, which I was considering, but um, wasn't really my cup of tea. Um, and also, you know, as, as I now know, the vet industry or the vet profession is based on animal agriculture and, and creating better versions of animals so they can produce more products for humans. But Mm. naively, I thought, you know, the vet profession was um, about loving animals and taking care of them. Um, Anyway, that's a side topic. But uh, so I started um, going into the environmental area and I ended up Mm. working for organizations like WWF and WIRES and, um, but my passion was always animals. And when my dad uh, sold his business, he was in funds management, I saw an opportunity to kind of like get him engaged. And that kind of led us to starting Voiceless together. And uh, yeah, feeling like I was finally doing what I was, I had promised Bronnie (laughs) at age (laughs) 10 Mm. that I would do. So it was been a lifelong kind of calling that I never Mm. felt there was anything else that I would do in my life except this. So, yes. yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And it's continued. Yeah. Yes, that's fantastic. Can we talk a little bit then about um, what that was like setting up Voiceless with your father, with your father, Brian Sherman, um, who many, many people know and and respect and you know hold hold dear to to their hearts as a really inspiring and effective um, advocate for for animal rights um, for many many years. What what was that experience like? Thinking 
as you said, that, you know, you, you had um, really made that that deep promise to Bonnie and, and you have this drive, this innate drive within you to protect animals. And what was that like sort of, you know, coming together, I guess, with Brian and thinking about how you could actually, you know, start an institute and put put that um that you know natural drive that you have into sort of action mm. did that look like um, in early days yeah so the the first kind of the beginnings of it was um we we were thinking of what can we do together because we're very close um as you know some people know he passed away just nearly a year ago so mm. yeah miss him very much we were very very close and we were thinking what we can do together um, since uh, we both loved animals. He became a vegetarian um, about four or so years after me. Um, and we shared this, you know, kind of passion for animals, but he had never been really engaged in the movement or advocacy or activism. Um, so I decided to uh, convince him uh, successfully convinced him to go together to um, an animal rights conference in in LA. Um, it was one of those you know big animal conferences that's still going on uh, every year today, and it was five days of very intensive um, talks and presentations, and you know film screenings um, from all the kind of top um, activist and advocate groups in America uh, for the most part. And, you know, I had known a lot of um, the content because I'd kind of been, you know, I'd been engaged in the movement already so many years. So, I, I mean, I found it, you know, very challenging and very sad, but not shocking, so to speak, that he mm -hmm. was totally just shocked and devastated. Um, and he kind of came out of it just you know, a shadow of his former self, the poor guy, because it is a really big shock when you uh, suddenly become aware of yes. the scope and breadth and depth of animal abuse. Um, so that was really the impetus for us saying, we're going to do something together. And then at the time in Australia, um, the animal movement was much more, um, I guess, seen as more radical, kind of as sidelined. There was never really any press about any animal issues. Mm. Um, there was nobody kind of um, well-known or famous who was behind it or talking about it. Um, so my dad was, um, yeah, a great salesman of one, one of his many skills, but he also was a great people person and he had these great networks of, you know, heads of banks and corporate leaders and you know media people and finance people and um people that I were never um affiliated with the animal movement <laughs> mm -hmm. uh and he also you know was very um blue sky thinking uh in the sense of you know if he had an idea he was like well of course we can make that work he was a you know uh an ideas person and um, so we, so the formation of Voiceless, Voiceless was really, I guess, bringing together my experience in the nonprofit world and the issues that I thought were really important from all, you know, those years of kind of being involved. Um, 
and his uh, connections and, you know, uh, um, you know, out of the box thinking really. Mm. And we decided we want to, you know, kind of position it as mainstream as possible to bring in new people to the movement um, and to also support the movement. So not come in and start competing with other groups um, mm. for, you know, funding or anything. So we funded or he put all his money into it. We didn't do any fundraising for many, many years. And he um, and we did a grants program and we just tried to support and grow the animal movement in Australia. Um, so, yeah, his other passion was really around animal law. So we mm -hmm. hired the first animal lawyer in Australia, Katrina mm -hmm. Sharman, um, who's still on our board of directors today. Yeah. And I think lawyers, you know, it was, it was very strategic move because lawyers are often considered to be, you know, very smart, effective people and not, they were the kind of the opposite reputation of the, you know, tree hugging, you know, bleeding heart, <laughs> radical, whatever names you want to call, you know, the, the way that animal uh, people or animal activists were described at the time. Lawyers were the, the opposite, you know, they're there in their suits with their, you know, degrees in the courts. So bringing that whole element into the movement was really, um, really effective. Mm. Uh, and my interest was more in education and engaging with schools and, and children mm -hmm. and um, I guess acknowledging that the way we think and feel about animals and how we allow them to be used and abused comes from, you know, a childhood socialization, really. Yes, uh, yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so That's it's a, a nice partnership. Yes, absolutely. A wonderful, wonderful partnership. And um, as you said, that experience of attending a conference together, much of that content that you really were across and that shock, um, you know, that lifting the veil, I guess, for, for Brian, that there was that reality that many people um, were are shocked to, to, to come to terms with. Um, just yeah what actually happens in industries that you know surround us every day and and the way that we we use animals is yeah just just so it's a traumatic different. knowledge i think was the term that we learned at the time just mm -hmm. that learning is you know can really undermine your faith in humanity and society mm -hmm. yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely well, we might take a short pause in the conversation there and go to your first song. So I think your first song, Ondine, is This Is How We Walk on the Moon by Jose Gonzalez. Is there a reason that you chose that song? Um, it's just a song I've been listening to lately and I really love. Um, yeah, I don't have anything too articulate to say about it but I guess it is I know my daughter always says like oh I listen to all the same kind of music so I have a particular genre which is maybe a little bit melancholic uh that, that I kind of get drawn towards but I don't think this is the most melancholic song so hopefully yeah. everyone will enjoy it fantastic okay fantastic well this is how we walk on the moon
every step is moving me up Moving, it's moving me up Each tiny, tiny move It's all I need when I jump over You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are. At home, work, driving. On public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. So we're back speaking with Ondine Sherman, who is the co-founder and managing director of Voiceless, the Animal Protection Institute. And we've had... A great conversation about, you know, your background on Dean and how you started Voiceless um, with Brian. And you mentioned just in that first segment, um, you know, your passion for education. And can we talk a little bit more about some of the things that um, Voiceless has focused on in terms of um, education programs and, and resources? Because I think some of the um, publications you have, some of the reports you have are absolutely fantastic like i love um the dairy reports i've looked at that quite a lot and use that in my own sort of advocacy because you pulled together all of the you know industry statistics and sort of really broken that down um for everybody but can we talk a little bit more about um yeah your passion for the for education and and voiceless's um contribution there mm, yeah sure um, so I guess education, if we divided it into uh, childhood education, which is something I'm really interested in, and then public education uh, in terms of the reports and um, other resources we've created. Um, so the reports were really part of, um, you mentioned lifting the veil. That was our kind of catchphrase for many, many years mm. that, you know, there wasn't the basic facts and figures, just basic information about what industries do, um, what mm -hmm. animals experience in, you know, the broiler industry and the egg laying industry and the dairy industry. Um, 
And we wanted to present it in a way that hadn't really been done before. So it wasn't a campaigning, um, you know, uh, um, the style wasn't to convince people. It was to share information and allow people to make decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so the report was really to, um, to give tools to advocates who were doing lobbying work, um, to lawyers who were, you know, talking on the issue or addressing the issue in their work, um, and uh, even students. Uh, so it was a deep dive into a particular industry. Um, and it was, yeah, a huge uh, amount of work, actually, because mm -hmm. a lot of the information is purposefully hidden from <laughs> consumer yes. sites. So we even had to use things like Freedom of Information Act and, you know, different devices to access data um, mm -hmm. on numbers and conditions. Um, and, yeah, the different farming industries kind of got their shackles up and threatened us at different times, the pig industry being one, um, kangaroo industry, uh, to try and shut us down. So we knew we were doing something right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, we, if they felt threatened. Um, because I guess the, the, what's in common with um, these different education tools is that, you know, the industry bodies in Australia put a huge amount of money to um, have their messages foregrounded. And they've often mm -hmm. been the only messages that politicians or the media or students um, hear about, uh, mm -hmm. about animals or about farming. So um, just as, you know, industry lobbies will put in millions and millions of dollars to um, convince, you know, convince everybody that uh, dairy is you know, a uh, humane and very pleasant experience for the cows. Um, they also put in huge amounts of money into school education uh, resources that yes. are, you know, taxpayer funded. And, you know, you see in schools competitions sponsored by the Meat and Livestock Association, you know, um, or... Um, one set of resources that we looked at early on was um, about eggs and the front cover of this primary school resource was, you know, a pretty little girl holding a basket, a wicker basket of eggs standing in a big green field with, you know, a scattering of kind of hens around her. When at the time, I think the, it, the, the free range industry was probably around 5% or 7%. So it's very, you know, obviously misleading, deceptive mm -hmm. behavior. Um, and uh, it felt important and it still feels important that, you know, organizations are, um, you know, providing other narratives or encouraging critical thinking with mm -hmm. students, um, and which is what we have been trying to do through different programs. But it's a tricky area because uh, schools are conservative um, institutions and, uh, and you know, you're going against the, the status quo and what people yes. understand and what they mm -hmm. expect. So, um, but in both areas, it felt very important to be just providing um, alternative 
you know, frameworks or alternative understandings of what farming looks like in Australia. Yes. And the industry has deep pockets. Let's be frank about that. You know, I've seen um, some of the resources that Dairy Australia promote in schools and, you know, some of it's, you know, colouring and, you know, all this sort of thing. Um, you might have seen they have also some really quite large, um, I don't know, basically like like a cow, like a, like a big sort of cow that, you know, I've walked into a school before and that was in the reception area. I was just blown away. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very strategic thing to do. If you if you get the hearts and minds of children, you've got them, you know, almost for life, really. Yeah. So you know that's that's a, a clear um, a clear tool for them that they use very strategically and, and very well. And there's a, a lot of money that goes into it. So when you know when people say, well, there shouldn't be animal groups in schools, you know challenging things or bringing in difficult subjects it's like well it's already in the schools but it's yes. from from a for-profit vested in interest perspective which arguably should not be in schools at all you shouldn't have a large corporations in schools selling their products um, under yeah. the guise yeah. of education yeah. so mm. <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's a whole area of, of real concern to me um yeah, but anyway, this is what happens, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of work to be done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love the resources that Voiceless has developed um, more for high school students, aren't mm. they? And, you know, really hitting on some really topical areas, um, you know, around, um, you know, live export you know, even things around, you know, animal sentience, you're starting, mm. starting with that, what, what actually happens um, to animals in, you know, modern society. How, how did that um, start? How did the, um, the writing and development of those resources start? I was really quite interested um, in mm. that. Yeah. Well, I was really keen to restart our education work. We, in the early years, we ran a series of clubs in primary schools called mm -hmm. animal clubs. And um, they were, I guess, supporting teachers to, um, you know, teach kindness and respect to animals. No difficult or traumatizing content at all. It was all very mm -hmm. kind of lovely about loving animals. Um, but it seemed like a better strategy to actually help teachers and give them the resources that they can deliver um, classes on different animal topics. Um, because there, you know, I guess if you just look at the Australian population and what percentage are engaged or interested in animal issues, you would have the same within the teacher community. So there's a lot of teachers out there who want to be talking about you know, animals, not necessarily in a, you know, um, trying to, with an agenda, but just bringing up issues because they're a huge part of our society and, and they're important to be discussed mm, yes. as a subject. Um, but there was no resources for them except for the industry resources, um, which did have an agenda. Mm. So um, 
So what we thought was, you know, if we create this content, then teachers will be able to, and it's free and easily available and it's aligned with the curriculum and it saves them work and saves them time, you know, um, trying to hobble together things, you know, in their own time, then um, we could, you know, have teachers all across Australia talking about, yeah, live export or about fish sentience or legal personhood and things that have never been introduced really into the classroom before. So we um, decided to hire a, um, an educator who was a previous high school teacher um, who knew the curriculum inside and out and knew how to speak to teachers because it's a particular yes. language <laughs> yeah. and and what it feels like to be a teacher because teachers are often you know very time poor and you know stressed mm. out and you know you can't be adding too much more to their plates you have to be kind of helping them mm. so uh so we did it with the aim of really promoting critical thinking for high school students um and introducing them to topics that they might never have you know thought about or discussed in the classroom and doing it in a way that was as, you know, I don't want to say fair, but, um, you know, it wasn't an activist kind of framework. It was, um, let's, let's, you know, let's debate and discuss and think about these difficult topics. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I think anyway, that's the best approach because when you do debate and discuss you know animal issues uh usually it's people struggle to find a valid reason for continuing industries as they run today <laughs> especially mm -hmm. looking at you know something like live expert export for example yes. but um but yeah it's um it was a really fulfilling and um you know like a very wonderful thing to be able to do and the resources are still being used today through our partner organization called education perfect that um you know has them in their uh system so students are still logging in and using um all our resources mm -hmm. and the most popular one which i think is really interesting is uh on uh, legal personhood for animals which is quite you know mm -hmm. an abstract concept mm -hmm. and um and not something that a lot of people know about but really just learning about the property status of animals in mm -hmm. our society and what it would look like to i guess recognize animals as um you know sentient beings with their own inherent value and their own agency rather than um bought and sold as our property so yes. uh i think that's a that's an interesting one and and Absolutely. appeals to young people, yeah. Absolutely. So, Ondine, just on that, is, is that one of the most popular topics for students to access? Yeah, that's the student favourite. Um, I think students, you know, young people don't want to be preached to generally. I don't think anybody does. And they want to be able to learn things and understand things in their own ways without, you know, a kind of an agenda. So... I think it's interesting that they chose that one because it, you know, it really is um, understanding a legal concept that's, yes. you know, quite specific uh, to Western society and, and laws. I mean, it is uh, common to, you know, most countries that animals are considered as property. 
Um, but it is, it's a, it's a, um, it really does challenge um, the way we see animals. So even it's surprising mm -hmm. because I think most people wouldn't imagine animals to be property. They see them as being animals with their own needs and, <laughs> you know, feelings. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is really fascinating because many students would have the experience of a companion animal either at home or living with loved ones and definitely observing that that animal most definitely has its own wants and needs and personality and all of those things but then you know being able to apply that concept of of animal sentience and legal personhood to animals in other settings i think is you know really fantastic um, and you know I'm, yeah. I'm really, really pleased that that's been um so well received yeah i mean even when you think about you know if a couple splits up and who takes the dog you know and that dog is just considered a piece of property like a television who takes it well who bought it how much did they pay for it you know were they paying the bills for it you know and then that determines who owns it whereas obviously with a, with a child <laughs> that's not what determines where the child goes it's who what's the best interests of the child who yes. are they going to be safest happiest you know most well looked after with and that would seem like an obvious thing for a dog yes. you know but even in that that small example you know animals are just um have no no rights <laughs> mm. Mm, absolutely absolutely well i think one of the other things we were going to talk about in terms of voiceless is the program that you have um in terms of providing grants to other organizations or individuals who are i guess change makers who are aligned with voiceless who are doing you know really fantastic things um advocating for animals and improving um the lives of animals can we talk a little bit about how that has developed and some of the organizations that um that you've really enjoyed working with and partnering with? Mm. Yeah, it's been a really exciting year or two as we've developed um, this new program and uh, and started supporting different, you know, activists and change makers um, in different areas. And I guess the beauty of a grants program as we're doing it is that you know, there's only so much like one internal team at any organization can do. Um, and we had, you know, at Voiceless, you know, experts in law and in education and communications. Um, but there's, you know, the animal movement spans every possible, you know, because animal abuse spans every segment of our society and is embedded mm -hmm. in every, you know, institution and um, products and, and so on. Um, that we can't possibly be across everything. So being able to support really inspiring change makers and bolstering them um, is really, you know, is, is very effective, but also very satisfying because it's so inspirational to talk to and meet, you know, people in all different fields. Um, a couple of examples of our grants recently, we've been supporting um, 
an organization that's uh, helping uh, dairy farmers in Australia transition to um, to non-animal um, mm. farming. Um, so that's acknowledging that there are, you know, a lot of farmers who, who after however many generations feel like this isn't what, mm. isn't the best thing for, you know, animals or the environment or their own health um, and want to, yeah, explore other ways to generate income on their land. So that's a really exciting project because it's, you know, doing what um, the animal movement hasn't done very much historically, which is uh, working together with um, mm. with farmers instead of, mm. you know, arguably criticizing them or <laughs> attacking them. Um, <laughs> So that's that's a nice win-win uh, area. Yeah, I um, asked Dean, is that um, Farm Transitions Australia? Yes, that's right? Farm Transitions yeah, Australia. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and that's something that's been um, popping up in other countries, in Europe mm. and the US, and slowly there's a network of these organisations and these people growing. Mm. So um, it's, yeah, I mean, we know that using the scarce land we have on the in the world for animals to you know feed them and grow them and slaughter them and eat them is not a, a very smart thing to do with our limited resources let alone climate change you know water pollution so i think people come from all different angles to mm -hmm. that conclusion that um we need to be more strategic really in yes. how we use our our land um and yeah we've had uh, some amazing partners we actually have broadened out for the first time out of australia and are kind of opening up to other activists or you know um people in in different areas there's an organization um here in israel where i'm based now um called vegan friendly and they're doing a lot of work in the food technology space um and they're basically mimicking a lot of like beloved foods um, with vegan alternatives, but that one wouldn't know that they're vegan. Uh, and they're not even necessarily, you know, labeling them in a, you know, or kind of promoting the marketing of them as vegan. Uh, they're like accidentally vegan, but the effects of those can be massive for animals, you know, just, mm hundreds of thousands of eggs you know no longer being used in a um you know in a cookie recipe um mm. that everybody enjoys and buys and uh and so that kind of yeah it looks and tastes the same as the original product and um and it's a win for the company because it's often lower cost for them and it's obviously win for the animals and win for the environment and it's ticks all the boxes mm -hmm. so it's yeah. some kind of things that have been not included i guess in the animal movement traditionally which is focused a lot on you know campaigning and you know mm -hmm. um, lobbying um and trying to yeah look at some of the more foundational i guess leverage points that can change change the circumstances for animals um mm -hmm that doesn't involve trying to convince people that what they're doing is wrong or that they need to change. <laughs> so, yes. yeah. I was 
I saw one of the organisations, I think this might have been in 2020, was um, City of Dogs from Ukraine. Oh, yeah. That um, was an emergency grant and we started up, um, you know, we get so many, you know, heartfelt and and things that are so difficult to <laughs> say no to. And oh, this was cool. not part of our usual grants criteria and not what our plan mm. was for our grants program because it's not focusing on structural change or, you know, addressing the kind of major institutional industrial mm. farming, you know, uh, systems. Yeah. But still at the end of the day, sometimes there's a crisis in the world and um, animals need help. So we started this emergency fund um, to do that. And uh, and we donated also to Turkey for the earthquake um, for a group who was, you know, rescuing animals there. And, um, yeah, it's sometimes important to break your own rules and just remember <laughs> that it's, you know, we, we're all in this because we're empathetic and, and want to help. So So that was... That was for that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I think we might go to your second song, and that is Week by, is it Asaf, Avedon and the Mojos? Yeah, I thought I would choose um, a couple of Israeli artists um, to, you know, I, it's taken me a long time actually to get into Israeli music, although these um, musicians are mostly in English. But uh, this is one artist I really like. And uh, fantastic. Yeah. All right, let's hear Wink.
still pervade Australian society. And that primary issue is white Australian racism. We've got a clear-cut case here of intentional genocide from the get-go, from the round table in England. The true history in this country isn't told. The government always say that they're committed to a truth-telling process. Well, where is your truth-telling process? I really believe that at the end of the day, the truth will emerge. You can't fight against the truth. It's, it's, a, it's an unstoppable force. It's indestructible. So deal with it. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch. We're back talking with Ondine uh, Sherman, who is a co-founder and managing director of Voiceless. And we, I wanted to just shift our focus a little bit um, for this last section while we, we're still together and talk a little bit about your studies because you're doing a PhD in focusing on critical animal studies. Is that correct? Yeah. Sydney University? Yes. Um, So critical animal studies is really doing academic work or research that's for animals, that has Mm -hmm. a purpose of creating change for animals, which is um, what I'm passionate about. so I'm, I'm looking at what influences um, someone to have animal rights values and to aspire to a vegan lifestyle um, and looking at all the kind of points um, during their life or their exposure to people or experiences that might have influenced them with mm-hmm. the hope of finding some clues that we can then 
add to our toolbox in the animal movement um, to try and, you know, continue to create change for animals. So, uh, yeah, it's something I've always been curious about and um, it kind of is a good complement to my animal advocacy work. Absolutely, absolutely. Are there any interesting things that you've discovered so far that you'd like to share with us about what does influence some people's, you know, thinking about animal rights, animal sentience, mm. what those factors um, mean? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a kind of a complex soup, I guess, and yeah. we're a complex creatures, so it doesn't seem to be one specific thing, unfortunately, because that oh. would be great if we could find, you know, <laughs> some little button to push. Yeah. But um, what I've been interested in and what seems to be coming through is that experiences with animals are very important. Um, mm -hmm. And that might be a companion animal, you know, a dog or a cat growing up, or experiences in nature, which are kind of transformative. Um, mm. I've been doing a lot of research into also like awe inspiring um, experiences, significant life experiences in nature. Um, and I think it's quite beautiful because it positions the animal as um, more like the agent that they are transforming us. And it's through yes. them that we're changing and we're understanding and seeing them differently so i think it's um yeah it's kind of like inverting you know often how we think or talk about animals is, as kind of pitying them or you know wanting to help them it's like well they they might be you know in control at times <laughs> and yeah. uh and being you know the influencers and the yes. change makers themselves yeah. so um so yeah, I, I love that side of it, although there's a lot of different aspects that have come through um, personality kind of profiles and family mm. values. And um, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's uh, an interesting complex area kind of spanning social psychology with, you know, education and uh, sociology. Um, mm. So hopefully I'll find um, something, you know, really interesting to then bring into the movement yes. um, and make it more effective. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll talk, love to talk to you about that more <laughs> down the track. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fantastic. So we only have about five minutes. So I did want to go back to, um, as I said in the beginning, that you've written quite a number of books and some quite diverse books. So I, I know that you have the um, Young Adult series. So that's very interesting, the Animal Allies series. And you've obviously got some, you know, nonfiction um, books as well. Now, how did you start writing or, or were you always writing as a child? Is that something that's a lifelong interest? Yeah, it has been actually uncovered a little book I wrote when I was about five or maybe six or something called Ant Friends, where I like illustrated a little book about ants um, and, and making friends with humans. Um, that was cute. But um, yeah, I got into writing. I wrote a kind of a memoir um, 
of my experience with my kids who have special needs. And um, I realized I love that process of, you know, writing a full book. And, and then I got ideas for, you know, again, linked into my interest in, in youth and, you know, the, the power of youth to create change and, um, Mm -hmm. and how important that age is of kind of early Mm -hmm. teen years. I mean, it was certainly very important for me in my development of my, you know, values. Um, so I wrote, yeah, a fiction, a fictional series, which are the main characters, um, a vegan, uh, teenager, and she, you know, it's a kind of coming of age, but all surrounded with animal issues and, um, you know, social and, um, navigating this social life, but, um, but animal protection issues and even kind of engagement in the animal movement. And yeah, I love, love that process. And, um, yeah, I've had wonderful feedback from young people. Um, oh, that's great. Uh, the books are called, uh, sky, snow and star. So it's a three part series. And then I went on to write a a guide to going vegan, um, partly just because of my own experience with, you know, everybody and anyone constantly saying, oh, but what about, you know, goat's cheese and how do I get my B12? And, you know, so I was like, okay, I'm going to do like put it all down, (laughs) like, and explain the whole situation. So uh, it's kind of like an all encompassing, you know, how, why. Uh, what to yeah. do about um, going vegan? Um, yeah, that was ended up being beautifully illustrated as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I hope to get back to get back to writing um, after the PhD or sometime soon, and um, perhaps take some of the things I'm learning through the PhD and bring it into a a book that's more accessible for everyone. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd love to um, talk to you more about your research. You know, down the track, that would be really yeah. Fun. I'd love that. Okay, yeah. yeah. All of those sort of factors that do sort of influence people, I think, are hugely interesting from a you know social psychology um, perspective, and also I think for people involved in advocacy um, movements, really yeah. trying to think about what is most impactful, what is most effective, what we really should be doing more of, what we really probably need to think about doing less of. Yeah, and there's quite a big disconnect between the academic world and the advocacy world. And, you know, once I kind of entered into it, and partly it's because there's paywalls, you know, that blocks everybody from really reading Mm. all these journal articles and now yeah. that I have access to, you know, the whole library at my fingertips, it's just like such important studies out there that advocates could and should be reading to inform their work. So I'm hoping that those two worlds can be brought together more, um, you know, so so we can be doing advocacy from a perspective of, you know, really understanding not only human psychology, but, you know, looking at the data of what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's really, really important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially when there are so many things demanding our attention. You know, there are so many animals in need. There are so many issues and topics um, that we need to address. So we, we we sort of don't really have time to... Um, be doing things that sorry 
be doing things that really aren't um impact. yeah no 100 percent. we have no time to be faffing around hoping that something is gonna work <laughs> and i'm talking from you know my own experience running an organization you just want to be as strategic as possible um yeah, and you know yeah. that's when the, the the scholars can come in handy <laughs> with their years of digging and researching you know these micro kind of areas uh so absolutely yeah well it's been really wonderful meeting you on dean and really wonderful hearing um you know about you and your your background and your motivation doing the work that you are doing and um yeah we'd love to speak to you you know again in the future thank but you thank so you much for joining us today yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I'd love to talk on any other subject in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the song that we're going to go out with is called Dreamer by the Angel Sea. Is that right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I saw these guys live a little while ago and love them. And just another song that I've been listening to lately and enjoying. So hope everybody loves it too. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks so much. And Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Okay, okay. bye. Bye. Oh, dreamer, dreamer, fold your wings. The rain is coming. Illusion feeds your lucid dreams The rain is coming It's time to fade to simple things Or hail the emptiness So dreamer, dreamer Fold your wings It's time to feel blessed And when I hold honey I love you Don't you know I love you You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au